What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Active Texan Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Watts, your host, and today we have special guest with us, Dr. Corey Gill. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, thanks it. for coming on the podcast. So, um, what I wanted to talk to you about first is just kind of figure out a little bit about your background. I mean, I don't, I don't even know where you grew up. Like, I, so for a little background between me and Dr. Gill, I when I moved here six years ago, I started working for Central Texas Sports Medicine. Um, that's where Dr. Gill currently is practicing. And um, so I got to know him a little bit, and I, I'm just really excited to have him here today on the podcast just to talk to talk about his kind of work life, spiritual life, everything life balance, and like what he does and all the fun, the kind of quirky things that he, he does and likes to do. So, Corey, first, where did you grow up? Mm, that, that, that'll explain a little bit of my weirdness and <laughs> stuff is that... I didn't say you were weird. <laughs> <laughs> Quirkiness is that uh, not everybody knows that I came from the swamps of Louisiana. Mm. And so some of my some of my southern quirks come from, from that area. Yeah. So, you grew up in Louisiana? I grew up in Louisiana, born and raised just north of New Orleans. And okay. uh, grew up in uh, rural and so enjoyed the outdoors. And that was my active life was I, I grew up where it's hot year round. We lived on a lake. And so I skied year round and then got to play with cousins, neighbors all the time outdoors. And so hunting, fishing, and just playing on the farm. I grew up, my grandparents were dairy farmers. And so we would help work the dairy farm for uh, extra pay on the weekends and in the summer times. So what city was that in? That was in Franklinton, Louisiana. Franklinton. It's on Lake Pontchartrain or it is north of it is just on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain. You got Covington, Mandeville, and then Franklinton. And there's another lake. And so there's a small lake. Okay. It's nowhere near the size of Lake Pontchartrain. <laughs> so right. I mean, that's that's huge. But so what you did when you were younger was you were outside on the farm. You helped out with a dairy farm, probably. Helped out with um, dairy farm. Milk, milked a few cows and decided that that was not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So well, that's good. It helped shape you. It did help shape me for sure. Do yeah. not mind doing some hard work and actually miss it sometimes. Oh yeah. So and then you also you did some water skiing. Is that what you're talking? So about? grew up water skiing and yeah. and actually I ended up not going to LSU because of better opportunities at a small um, Baptist liberal arts college, which is where I ended up going, Louisiana College. I did do some of my credit hours at LSU, but then did my main course hours and everything at the small college because their med school program was known in the state as the best and 100% acceptance rate, which is unheard of for med school. That's from Louisiana That's college. from Louisiana College. Like if you majored or did pre-med. If you did pre-med there, you were pretty much guaranteed. 100%. You're, you're guaranteed. guaranteed. <laughs> Up until the last till your class. I was told no, up, up until my <laughs> class when I didn't get in. No. <laughs> no, it was actually up until the last five years. They were 100 percent and they're still last time I checked, they were like 97 percent. So they've had a few kids in the last five years that ended up not getting in, but they're still in the upper 90s, which is crazy. So most people in that area just you, you said you said it like most people just go to LSU. Most people just go to LSU, and that's yeah. where a lot of my friends went. And I actually was registered and ready to go to LSU, and then I was like, "No, this is not. I really do want to do medicine. This school is known for medicine." One of my friends decided to go there because it's also uh, they were medicine teaching and um, and ministry, so a lot of ministry people went there. And so one of my friends 
was huge in leadership and wanted to go into ministry and he ended up going there and he kept asking me no you need to look at louisiana college you want to do medicine they're the best mm. and ended up going there and it was, it was meant to be where is louisiana college and so it's in alexandria louisiana okay. right in the center of the state yeah so, and so what um why did you want to go to med school you said that you knew from I, that i grew up so my age. mom was a nurse and drug me on some mission trips and that whet my appetite for medicine and i enjoyed that aspect of ministry of doing mission trips and serving the underserved and serving in areas where i felt like they were truly a lot uh, very appreciative and so it was good feedback enjoyed that and that's what got me into it i went to honduras with her took blood pressures with her and helped uh do odds and end work on the mission trips. And that just whet my appetite for it. Worked with a couple of the same doctors over and over again. And they just sold me on, I'm going to do medicine. Actually very interested in family medicine because that's what they did. Mm-hmm. A little bit of everything. And I liked the variety of it. And so that's where I, uh, that's where I got my appetite wet and I was sold on it. And so, and then that connected with me with Louisiana College because they did have the ministry and the medicine connected together. And so it really, it really worked out well. Yeah. So you started doing, you started a mission work when you were in high school. So I started in high school. That's when you started taking blood pressures in Honduras. That's when I started going to Honduras. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is the group I went with the, on my first trip is the group that I now help lead teams for. And so we met back up and totally lost track. There was a period where I was in med school and stuff and we totally lost connection and I wasn't able to travel and get out of school and stuff to do those trips. Couldn't afford them sometime during part of that. I was a poor, I was a poor med student trying to pay my bills. Um, But then uh, through a friend of a friend who had come to me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm with this ministry group and we really need a doctor to help help us lead a team. And I was like, well, sure. Tell me who it is. And it was the same group that I used to take trips with as a kid. And I was like, it's meant to be. Yeah. And have been doing that ever since. How long ago was that? When did you start doing that? So that that was, they they came back to me again about seven years ago when I was pretty established here in the area here. So it was, it was when I was here and the group's from Louisiana. And so we just linked back up again. So that made it easy. It was, I already knew, was familiar with the people and the process, yeah. and so it was perfect. So, yeah, I had been going with them since I was in high school. So, so after Louisiana College, where'd you go to? Uh, so, I did med school in Kansas City, okay. and that was another friend of a friend thing. His dad was from Kansas City and talked me into going there for an interview because he was super proud of the program and the philosophy of the osteopathic, which was not something that is big in Louisiana. Hmm. And so the osteopathic physician and mentality of looking at the bigger picture and treating people as a whole, looking at the spiritual, mental, and physical, and not just what medications can I give you? It was, uh, and that, that got my interest. And so he talked to me and he said, just go look at this osteopathic program in Kansas city, see what you think about it. And I just, I liked their attitude, their character and their philosophy, the way they approached medicine and mm-hmm. and about wellness just taking care of the whole person caring about the person and not just the goal of trying to find a diagnosis check that box off here's your medicine see you later yeah did and you that's consider what I love. doing md or you were drawn i did i did i, I applied to lsu because that's what everybody from louisiana did was you applied to lsu med school <laughs> and i had a family friend who was 
high up at LSU who was trying to get me to come there. And, but after I visited Kansas city, I was just sold on their philosophy and their approach to medicine. And I was like, I'm going to Kansas city. And mm-hmm. He was heartbroken cause he was a good family friend. So yeah, well, I'm sure he got <laughs> he over was, it, right? He was disappointed, but he Still ended up against you. <laughs> the small world was he ended up coming to college station and was the head of the program here. And he's the reason I ended up back. He's the reason I ended up in College Station was because I ended up coming to his program here after med school to finish my training. And uh, he was the head of it. Yeah. So, so that's was, how you ended up coming. It, here. it tied back together was, yeah. yeah, family friend who moved here, who was head of the family medicine program here in town. Who is that? So uh, Dennis Floravia. Okay. So he was a physician. He's still here? Or? He's not. He's back in Louisiana, retired. Okay. okay. So. And um, so where'd you do your residency? So I did my residency here uh, under A&M, okay. family medicine. And that's and what then he That's what he recruited me to. Yeah. Okay. And I liked everything, but I still really loved the musculoskeletal stuff and was always sold on. Uh, I was sold on doing everything when I was here and I loved it. And I, I, I did everything. I delivered, I delivered over 50 babies uh, and that was fun. But it was not something I wanted to do the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and I did a little bit of everything and enjoyed everything, but I really loved the musculoskeletal system and working with people who were motivated to get back to activity and just that was enjoyable more than anything. So I left here and did a year, one year fellowship at Fort Worth at TCU huh. uh, with John Peter Smith Hospital and came back. What was the fellowship? Sports? So the fellowship was one year in sports medicine. All right. And that's, Did you know we have a little connection here? No. All right. So um, my dad is also a physician. He went to medical school in Houston, UT Houston, and then he went to his residency. Was it JPS? John really? Yeah. Um, and I think there, I don't know if some other, there may have been some other crossover there, but anyway, so JPS is where he did it. But then he ended up, he did family medicine for 15 years um, in Arlington. So still okay. in that same area. I lived in Arlington the year I was doing the fellowship. All right. So we, <laughs> I don't know if we were there at the same time, but we moved to Mississippi when in 2000. Okay. And he kept doing family medicine and that's when he got into sports medicine and started, he, he trained and studied for his sports um, certificate or and, the specialty or whatever it is. Um, and at the same time was building the fellowship program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And so he was getting into academic medicine plus family and sports, kind of the best of everything Just that he loved doing. Combined it all. Um, and so eventually he took the longer route. I mean, because he did family for a long time uh, in Arlington. Pra- practiced it. For right, a while. private practice. And it was great. He loved it. That's where I grew up. And then we moved to Mississippi, and that's when he started doing sports and absolutely loved that. And that's what got me into athletic training and physical therapy. Like that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't done that. But there's, I mean, the that's JPS funny. connection is pretty cool. Yes. It's great training, man. You drink it from a fire hydrant because they've got tons of stuff going on all the time. Yeah, I loved I loved family medicine and I could have that was my original intention was to be a full scope family doc. The family friend from Louisiana was all about training rural docs to go and take care of a full town of people. You can take care of anything they need. And to me, that variety and those relationships were all sounded awesome and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then got here and really, really loved musculoskeletal. And I could still do both. And heck, I got to go back to some of my family medicine roots during the whole COVID thing. 
because um, I do work with the training program here. So I, I run the sports fellowship, but I also help teach for the family medicine docs that are training here. And because of people getting quarantined, they needed some more docs to help the family medicine program. So I went back and rounded at the hospital for a few weekends and covered covered family medicine for a while. Yeah. And and I enjoy it. And so I'd rather do that than be bored. And since the outpatient clinics were halfway shut down for a while, gave me something to do. And so Yeah. So you still are able to squeeze that family still, medicine in I'm there. St- I'm still able to use it. It's been it's not been a waste of time and effort. So and so what, what drew you into the sports side of things? I mean, we didn't talk I, about any. I always, lo- I always loved sports, but I was never good enough to get paid to play sports the rest of my life. Yeah, so, me neither. So I, so I figured out the next best thing was to get paid to stand next to the guy who was good enough to do yep. sports for the that's rest of I, his life. That's, <laughs> that's why so, I became an athlete so, trainer. So that was my end to, to, to staying involved in sports. Um, I grew up, I loved basketball growing up, realized I was too small for football and basketball was kind of my niche where I was halfway decent. And so played basketball through high school and then wasn't good enough to play professional at college. So mm-hmm. played for fun, all the rec sports, yeah. like, like any good rec sport fan would do. Yeah. <laughs> Just played everything I could. My, my claim to fame in college that I did get to be on the scrimmage team. So oh, <laughs> for the, nice. for the good guys, really? <laughs> so like the practice squad, mm-hmm. got the, the practice squad for our basketball team at Louisiana college at the, at the metropolis of Louisiana college <laughs> in Alexandria. So in the swamp, in the swamp. <laughs> um, so you, now you're practicing. I mean, you're doing primarily sports, but you still get to get some of that other variety of things. What is your kind of, regular kind of weekly practice look like kind of from yeah. season to season. I know it probably changes in the fall versus the spring and the summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fa- falls are crazy and chaos with all of the football sports going on. Football and soccer overlap and makes fall crazy because every night of the week there's either practice or games. Since Is this, are you talking specifically college level or the overlap, school? the overlap with, with the overlap of college and high school? Cause yeah. cause Friday nights you'll have your high school football Saturday you'll have your college football and then Sunday you'll have your soccer games and so and then college soccer so, so rolling through the weekend. weekend so then soccer is also a lot of times playing on Thursday or Friday also mm-hmm. and so then you've got double overlap sometimes um, and then with college football level you're having to cover practices because there's enough stuff that happens during practice and not just games so you're covering practices the rest of the time during the week and so and in at the beginning of fall, my family says bye to me and see you in Christmas, and then and then spring's spring's busy, but not that chaotic, and so we do get to see each other in spring. But summer's our big time, with most of the sports being shut down, and it's just summer leagues, which are less chaotic for mm-hmm. us. Um, summer's our time, our family time, where we do a lot of stuff, and I burn all my vacation days that I can. Yeah. So well, it's also you do something in the spring too, right? Yeah, you know? spring spring's busy too. I mean, you got you've got baseball and then the end of basketball coming through the, through the first part of spring. Um, so it's not without work. It's just not as not as busy as the fall, and it's relatively less busy. It's still busy, but nothing like the fall. So, but because I teach too, then that it gives me variety. I love variety, and so. I'll be doing patients 
a half day or a full day. And then I'll be teaching for a half day. I'll be supervising their clinics where they're seeing patients. And I'll be kind of going over their shoulder, making sure they're doing it correct um, at the teaching practice. Mm -hmm. And so I do that every week too. So that gives me a half day of oversight of their clinic. Um, And then I'll go out and provide care at the training rooms for the college, or I'll go out to Butel and provide a sports medicine consult clinic so that they can uh, send patients that the Butel docs are uncomfortable with to, yeah. to have a second opinion on musculoskeletal issues. <laughs> yeah, so you have a pretty good variety of so what I, you're I, able to I provide. Get a, I get a good variety from you know young high school athletes to college athletes to, you know, a lot of our college athletes, we get pretty good relationships with, and then they'll sometimes come back to get some of their care from here as elite athletes. And so some of our guys that end up going on and making it big still come back because we've earned their trust. And so that's nice. Um, And then I've got everything in my clinical practice to, you know, the arthritis. And one of my favorite patients is a 96 year old World War II vet who comes to me for his knee arthritis. We sit and talk about, man, he's got the best stories. And so we sit and talk about the good old days. (laughs) 96 years old. I was going to ask you, like, who's kind of your typically your or your favorite kind of person to work with? I mean, maybe that's I I like each. I like each. Yeah. You know, it's I like each. I like the stories. And so for me, that's that's why I loved family medicine, because you get to make relationships with patients. You really do get to know your patients. And so. I still do that. And that's what I like about it is you get to hear their stories and you get to learn about them and then you get to see them improve or do something they weren't able to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, for him, he was initially wheelchair bound because his knees were so bad and now he's able to walk on his own. And we ended up actually, I, uh, I got to know his family too. And he lives in an assisted living because he was requiring so much care. He still lives there but he's still with it mentally. So we all took a road trip and took him to the World War II Museum in New Orleans last oh, year. Nice. Wow. So that's, so that's the kind of connection you don't typically get with your doctor. So, you know, um, but, I, it, it's the stories I love and it's like yeah. being a part of that. And so it was fun to get to go. And he was able to tell us stories about the stories that we were looking at on the walls and stuff. He was able to tell us the backstory to those from his perspective, Yeah, which was awesome. Yeah, and so you also work with a lot of high school and younger um, athletes, college athletes. I think one thing that happens a lot, like what I see as an athletic trainer, is I'm, I'm seeing somebody get hurt on the field, and they don't want to tell me they're hurt, but I know they're hurt. And, um, and then they end up not wanting to go to a doctor. or, But I want to dispel that myth of, like, if you're hurt, you're not going to play. Yeah, like that's not the bottom line. They're, they're right. afraid that if they go, somebody's going to tell them you've got an injury now. You're you're out for six weeks. Yeah, so it starts with on the field, even like with the athlete trainer, yeah. and so part of our job is to help them, you know, navigate that. Like, and so having the, your kind of specialty is key in all of this cycle of like the yeah. team take, team approach taking care of these athletes because we can help them get to the right place. And actually, they get back way sooner than they think they or they ever would have if they had of or they, they could do sooner damage and, to them too, sooner and safer and yeah. better long term is because I, I tell them I never tell someone who's 
competent to make their own decisions. I never tell them that they have to do something. I simply give them options and I tell them pros and cons. So I'll never tell you that you can't run with a fracture. I just tell you, it's probably not in your best interest, depending on where that fracture is and mm -hmm. how it might affect you long term. And so, and I am all for not holding you out of activities any longer than you have to, mm -hmm. because it does start to affect you. It's the big picture mentally and physically. And so it's not just all physical of, well, you're going to decondition every week you're out of activity, you're losing ground that takes twice as long to make up. Right. So I am all for not holding you out longer than you. And that's, that is true. I mean, that's the myth is that, well, now that I know I have an injury, they're going to tell me I can't do anything. And that's the other, that's the other side of it is no, I, I, if I tell you, you can't do something, I am specific on what you can't do. And I usually try and offer you alternative exercises mm -hmm. so that you do not lose more of the conditioning than you have to. And so I may say you can't run, but you can swim and bike for a short period. And, and we try to make it the shortest period it's possible. I mean, and I have all extremes of athletes. I mean, some of the quote worst athletes are rodeo guys, because it doesn't matter what you tell them, they're going to ride next week, mm -hmm. whether they need to or not, because that's their money. And that's, that's how they survive. They're rodeo to rodeo for money. And so, but, but then, once you earn their trust, they'll come to you because I've had guys that are like, man, I didn't even know what a bone stimulator was. And so a guy had a fracture and he was supposed to ride in three weeks. Well, that fracture would normally never heal in three weeks. Okay. But because we found out he had it early enough, we were able to get him a bone stimulator and a fracture that normally takes six weeks was healed in three weeks when it was time to ride. Wow. And so rather than ignorantly, he was going to ride either way. Yeah. But if he, but he had, told you about but it. if he had ridden without my help of the bone stimulator, he would have ridden with a fracture. Mm -hmm. But instead, we were able to treat it aggressively, and he was able to ride with with no increased risk because it healed. Yeah. And so that's one of those things. It was not better out of sight, out of mind. It's better not to know. It was better to know, right? Because then I could educate him and say, "You have a fracture, but we have three weeks, and with a little extra stuff, we can actually make it safe for you to ride in three weeks." And that just blew his mind. Was I, my fracture can heal in three weeks. Well, not, not without a little magic device called a bone <laughs> stimulator, but if you're willing to get that, then yes. And yeah. it worked. <laughs> yeah. Then it becomes no question for him. It's not like, well, so, will my insurance cover it or how much is like, it, no, I it, need it. It was like, it was, <laughs> it was if ride. you want to ride, this will make it safe. Well, why not? Yeah. Of course I'll do that. Yeah. You got him that result. So, so, I mean, that shows the importance again of like the medical team. And that's just communi approach. communicating the big yeah. picture of I, you want to ride. Okay. What can we do to make it safer? Or you want to run or you want to do whatever? How can we make it safest for you to do it? And then you got to decide risk versus benefit. And yeah. that, a lot of times there's things we can do so that it's a win-win. You can ride, but we can also do this and make it safer. Yeah. And I think you battle that in every athlete. I mean, I know rodeo may be extreme, but even, I mean, you as a physician, you have a lot of power in, with your words. So, because yeah. people just by a doctor in front of your name, there's this inherent trust of what you're going to say is gold. So yeah. with that comes a lot of responsibility in how you affect the way people think about their injuries. And this is something that I really focus on, especially the last two and a half years since I've started my own practice and I'm talking to people a little differently because for different reasons that show them that well, number one, they're not broken. Like, yeah, maybe you have a fracture or yeah. 
you have a sprained ankle or you strain a muscle in your back. But if you get the wrong words coming at them, like, oh, you have this disc bulge and you've got a pinched nerve and this is exactly what's causing every problem. Well, first of all, we're not helping them with how that even happened. Yeah. We're just telling them that's what's going on and that doesn't help their pain. Mm-hmm. So the words we say to people, whether you're um, saying that they're broken or not, like I don't even use that word. Yeah. I stay away from the negative terms. But like what you're saying is taking things and modifying them. Like say somebody has a stress fracture and they can't run. So what can they do? Yeah. This, this kind of person who got a stress fracture probably was running lots of miles. Mm-hmm. And so if you told them don't run, number one, they're probably going to ignore you. Yeah. Um, but number, you know, also they, they, they need something um, to do. So if we can help them, give them something to do to help them heal faster, I mean, that's going to be like what really comes together, the best recipe for them to get back yeah. to what they were doing before and maybe even better than before. Yeah. And they're, they're everyone, you know, everyone that comes to us in one way, they're all athletes of different levels. Right. And so they're going to take, they won't give them an assignment and they will do it to the best of their ability. And so they don't want you to just tell them all the things they can't do, tell them what they can do and then let them excel with it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's for a lot of, you know, I get a lot of back stuff. And so that's one that's easy that people don't understand. They're told, Oh, I have a back injury. I can't do anything because my, I got a bad back quote, bad back. And so, but if you empower them and tell them, look, if you have a bad back, but strong core, you can compensate for that bad back. So let me give you these exercises to improve your core. I want you to go full speed ahead and get your core strong as you can. Well, now they have a goal. Mm -hmm. If I get my core strong, I might could run again. I might actually compensate and be able to live with a bad back, quote, bad back. Yeah. So that's why you stay away from saying stuff like you're never going to run again. Yeah. Or you should never say never because people will prove you wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You learn. You learn very quickly. You tell someone they'll never do something and that's just motivation. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you told someone um, that if it hurts running, then don't run. They're like, or it it got hurt squatting. So stop squatting. Like, okay, I'll never sit down. Just do it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that, I think, things are changing in the healthcare world of it, it is a diff, difficult place to navigate injury, Yes. but people like you and me and this kind of medical team approach of the holistic approach of like helping someone do what they love to do and keep doing that. Even though, like you said, everyone is an athlete to a different level um, or their ability. You know, I treat everyone that comes to this door like an athlete uh, yes. and whether it's doing something, really intense like crossfit or just running a mile every day um then you they're an athlete their body is is resilient like they can heal like you can't say never because you don't know in 10 years if they've been working on core strength for that 10 years then they're going to be able to prove you wrong exactly <laughs> yeah and and, that, and that's what i love about like you the, the way you said it, it's teamwork it's because i can there are areas that i can tweak and there are things that I can do to get them over that hump where they feel like they're stuck and can't move. But then there's long-term work that they need to do in order to be successful. And a lot of the stuff that I do is short-term. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do little things that are going to make you feel better. But if you don't fix the mechanism that led you to this problem, this is going to be a recurrent problem or a permanent problem because if you never fix it, it's never going to go away. Right. And that's why I love, 
not all PTs are created equal. Many will not take the time to look into the source of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if you never do that, that's, that's good for business because you're going to get that patient back over and over again, but it's bad for reputation because you're going to get the reputation of someone who does stuff that feels good for a week or two, but then six weeks from now I'm back where I started. And so it's, it's a, it is a teamwork and it's a looking at the big picture, looking at the reason they got the injury, fixing the mechanism, fixing the source and the structural issues that yeah. led to it. So yeah, you're speaking my language now. We're, we're, <laughs> you know, and that's that osteopathic philosophy. We're on the same page. Like that's kind of a general practice philosophy and, uh, yeah, we speak that language together. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, that's why I'm glad I know people like you in this community. I'm glad I was. Um, I spent, I guess it was four and a half years being here and getting to know some of the physicians here and their different approaches. Because, like you said, not every physician is created equal either, um, in the way they their philosophy and the way they approach things. So, no, having the right people around you is, you know, we want to help people. Number one, and we can only help so many people ourselves. Exactly. But when you have more people helping you, help people then you multiply that, that just completely multiplies into do what I'm good at. You do what you're good at for yeah. the, for that patient and together it makes it multiply. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So now I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you're balancing in your life. Um, you talk, you've talked a little bit about the ministry that you're involved in, but now that's kind of become part of like who you are actively too, um, physically, spiritually, psychologically, um, how are you combining, or first of all, what is it that you're involved with the last seven years with your, um, mission work and stuff like that? Where are the, some of the places y'all have gone? Yeah, we've, we've really linked with two, two different people. Um, one is the consistent ministry that I grew up working with was uh, in Honduras with the group Baptist Medical and Dental Missions. And there's a family from Louisiana that we knew well that is there full time and helps run the mission hospital there in Guayamaca. Hmm. And so we, we've taken and groups from Louisiana and groups from here locally with Grace Bible Church usually go there every year. And so we send a team there every year and a lot of times we'll do a couple of days in the hospital helping do some work and then a couple of days out in the village screening people just giving them general feedback on the wellness of the community and stuff. Working with the local pastors, we try to support them and see what they need to help their community. So we, we're kind of brought in as the pastors requested us to kind of, as a gift to their community, to try and help provide some wellness pearls and pointers and sometimes surgeries. So uh, this surgeon with us in town, so Seabolt's been a few times and we've mm -hmm. done some orthopedic surgeries or sometimes we meet a friend of a friend and we take a general surgeon and we'll do some hernia repairs and remove some gallbladders if we find that people needing those kind of things. Because um, in, in Honduras, if you can't afford it, unless it's a true life-threatening emergency, you don't get it. Mm. And so there's a lot of people that are uh, unmet needs uh, in there. And so we've had before a kid that a tree fell on his arm because he was helping his dad do some work and he went to the ER and they said, well, your arm is broken, but you don't have the money to pay for the surgery. So here's a sling and it will probably heal good enough that you can live with it. And mm -hmm. here's some Tylenol, go home. 
Oh, wow. And they heard about our mission hospital. And so someone at the ER happened to tell them about the mission hospital. We were there that week. And so they went from that ER to the mission hospital, which was like three hours away. But they drove out to the mission hospital after just leaving the main ER and being given a sling for a broken arm that actually needed, it was not in line. They mm. probably not even taken an x-ray to look at it. And so we were able to help them out. And so it's just one of those uh, chance meetings, but at the right place at the right time. Happened to be the week that we had the ortho surgeon there. And so, yeah, stuff so that like was that. when y'all were there. So that was when we were actually there. Wow. And so stuff like that. And so being able to support that ministry and those people um, has been awesome because they're just good heart and they're there full time trying to make a difference and help those communities. And then the other group that we link with is in Nepal and they're full time missionaries uh, doing ministry. And their goal is orphanage um, ministry support the kids because Nepal is the number one area in the world for child trafficking. And so their goal is to rescue as many children as they can out of that because a lot of the families feel they're so poor they have no other choice. They sell their children and stuff in order to survive, to put food on their table. Wow. And so their goal is to try and help teach the families sustainable farming and some other things so they don't want to sell their kids or kids that were sold they try to rescue. And so they've been building that ministry. So we go there and we'll work with them in some remote areas trying to provide some care to those communities, check those kids out and the families. The average family there lives on, in these remote villages, lives on less than a dollar a day. Most of them, and they just put a value on it because most of them actually don't make money. They actually just grow a little bit of crops just and trade. trade. Like and so they, they, live in the, in the they live in the old days where they just trade for just enough to survive. And it literally most of the time is just enough to survive because they're all fairly malnourished and they survive on stuff that can grow at high altitude in cold weather. And so it's either potatoes or it's rice, it's lentils and rice and very few lentils, more rice than lentils mm -hmm. most of the time. Wow. And so most of them, 90% of them only eat two meals a day and it's either potatoes or rice and a few small beans. Wow. So they're very, very poor protein diets and just in general, pretty poor health. Yeah. So we go there and try and do some things to help them. And they're doing some sustainable farming, starting to do some classes, teach them some of those trades and tricks to try and help them have better nutrition. And then we talk to them about, you know, clean water because you're already at a disadvantage, so any compromise to your immune system or health, drinking dirty water, not boiling it for properly and all, makes a big difference because they don't have the reserves to handle any disease. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so you're that's that's awesome. You're able to expand like what you initially got all into all this for, just helping people in medicine to yeah. beyond Bryan College Station and into Honduras and this is like once a year you go to Honduras yeah and then so you've done these, Nepal these a trips, couple of times yeah Nepal the last two years I got to go okay and so yeah these trips really reach back to my family medicine my general wellness training and uh, and then stuff that I never had I mean I've dug into some public health stuff and for how to how to sustainably improve the health of areas and stuff so said the one other degree if I ever got another degree would possibly be public health to try yeah. and try and learn a little more practical public health for these remote villages that are so far behind 
Do you know how the um, pandemic is affecting these villages? Depend depends on the depending on the areas. So in these small villages, they're so remote that they don't have contact with with travelers, and so they don't have anybody bringing those diseases into their villages. So these these really remote and small villages. I mean, the village we did two years ago, it took us. It was the only way in was by foot, and it took us two days to hike in. And so they're not leaving their village very often. So well, <laughs> and, they may and not make it back. And there's leave. not many people that are going out to their village yeah. because it's not just let me hop in my car and go visit my friends out in that village. <laughs> so, yeah. And then so so a lot of these villages outside of the main cities there are they're doing fine because they're not they're not getting exposed to the virus. In the main city, things are very compact. People are very poor, and so you'll have multiple families living in one tight area because they can't afford anything else, and so they're piled on top of each other. And in those areas, they're they're having a harder time. It's just now really going hard through India and Nepal, and those er some of the, a lot of those areas kind of live alike. They're all piled in tight because they can't afford. Uh, they're all they can't afford their own place, so families go in and they they'll have an apartment, but they'll have several people in each room living together, sleeping on mattresses or mats to, together. When was the last time you were there? So we went there last year. Um, and that was in what time of year? That was in, I want to say it was in March. It and then was, the year before, that first year you went, it, which year did, did y'all hike? So that was last year. So last year, last year actually it was in April because we went towards the end of the season to go to Everest. So in May, in May starts their monsoon season and May, June, July, our summer is a bad time for them because it's heavy rains and washouts. And so it's dangerous in the mountains because there's lots of washouts from the rain. It's, it's heavy rain season. So you can't actually climb and hike through Nepal in the summers and, and what's our summers. And so you have to go before that. And so Everest season is kind of March and April is the, is the high time for Everest season. So if you want to climb Everest, you got to go in those times. And so our goal last year was to work some villages, to reach out to some villages on the way to Everest and to go make our way to Everest. And so that's what we did. And so we made our way to Everest uh, last year and was able to go to base camp. And so we reached right at right at 20,000 feet And so for, wow. for base camp one. So Everest. what did you do to train for that? I did lots of interval workouts and walk in the neighborhood with my backpack on and so would 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 hike around my back my neighborhood with my backpack stocked with 40 pounds of weights or whatever i could mm -hmm. stick in there water bottles and stuff and did would, you use any kind of mask like o2 deprivation no, no did not did not do anything like that um, until you got there until I got there. So actually, actually, the studies show that the best preparation for high altitude, if you can't afford, if you, if you can't afford an altitude tent, because the, the data is not there for the for the starvation mask, but the altitude tent where they can actually simulate the altitude, it works, but you have to use it a lot and for a long time ahead of time, and so it's very expensive. So it's expensive if you want to use those extra devices. The one that actually works and has the most data would be the, the altitude tents, but that 
that cost adds up really fast and you'll you'll easily spend five to ten thousand dollars to do it right how do you use an altitude tent and so you actually sleep in the altitude tent and it recreates the oxygen level that you would experience if you're sleeping at 20 30,000 feet and so you're you're depriving your cells of oxygen while you sleep and what that does is makes your body create more oxygen carrying capacity the problem is in order to build that capacity you have to do it slowly over time and so you need to use the tent for at least three months ahead of time and either either to purchase the the tent or to rent it for three months gets pretty pretty pricey and so the other devices it's questionable as to the efficacy and whether it's actually beneficial or harmful um, with, the, with the oxygen, particularly with the oxygen starvation devices. I actually visited with one of the team, one of the Everest team docs that was actually going to the top and one of his members almost, almost died using the oxygen starvation mask because he was using it at home alone and he passed out while working out and luckily, oh when he God. luckily when he fell, the mask was dislodged from his face. Otherwise, he would have suffocated there with the with the mask on. And so, dangerous and questionable as to whether they actually benefit you to work out and starve your body of oxygen while you work out. You actually want to increase your body's oxygen comparing capacity while you work out, so that you strengthen your muscles and build muscle faster and improve your body. It's, it's during the down period where it's helpful long-term, long and slow starvation, so the oxygen tents overnight will make you create more oxygen carrying capacity. So that's where you want to use those. So, but that's basically but that, not it, it gets feasible. out of, it gets out of, out of range. And so, so the, what do you do? The other study, the other study that's interesting, the ones that have the most data show that actually exercise in an area with high humidity is probably the next best thing to using an oxygen tent. And luckily, living here in the South, yeah, high humidity is not something that we lack. And yeah. so working out in the heat of the day when the humidity was the hottest and getting my backpack and going out hiking in the humidity, just making sure I took enough water so I didn't pass out myself. But um, doing that, and I just think that it helped. Who knows? I've only got a case study of one. So for me, right. it seemed to help. I didn't, I didn't struggle physically as much as I thought I would at the altitude, although there's nothing to prepare your body for, for being at the altitude. You're gonna, you're gonna have a lower O2 sat. And actually, we kinda, within our group, was just out of interest. We carried O2 sat monitors and would compare each other's oxygen sats with exertion and at different points in the day. And so when we did reach to the 20,000 uh, at base camp, we all measured our oxygen sats and my initial sat after the exertion of just getting there was 70%, which is comparable to a severe COPD smoker who mm -hmm. comes in the hospital and who we admit to the hospital for care overnight because their oxygen is so low. Thankfully, once we hiked back down and once I acclimated, even just after the exertion, my oxygen sat comes back up to a reasonable level, but you're, you're definitely physically short of breath no matter how you prepare and that's what these teams do they get there to base camp and they camp at different levels to acclimate and so the the team will spend several weeks trying to get to the top not because it takes weeks to climb but it takes days to acclimate mm -hmm. and so they'll go from base camp one to base camp two and they'll spend a week there getting used to the altitude once they're used to the altitude there then they'll go to the next base camp and then to the top 
And so they'll, they'll slowly work their way, the teams that want to be successful, which the longer you stay on the mountain, the more money it costs. And so you're paying for, you're paying for supplies and you're paying for them to be delivered to a remote location and you're paying for team members to support you. And so the, the teams that are successful will, will spend an average of $50,000 per person and up. Mm-hmm. To and get so, all the way to the top. To get to the top. And, you know, so the average, the average team, you know, some teams will only spend 50000 50, But some of the teams that want to do everything possible to be successful, they'll spend $100,000 per person. Wow. To make sure they have enough support staff and supplies to get there. So Which, when y'all did it, you, um, what, was, what was the process like going from, like, where did you start from to get to Base Camp 1? So you start... You start from a small village that is, um, and I forget how many miles, but it's several days away. You can't, you can't, well, you, you, you could fly in to close to base camp and hike up, but if you start at a, at a really high altitude, you have a lot higher risk of getting altitude illness. And so you want to start below 10,000 feet and slowly work your way up so that you kind of acclimate as you hike. And so you start, you fly into a village um, of, I forget what the altitude was, Um, but you either fly or you helicopter into the village and then from there you hike and you'll you'll stay at certain levels to acclimate and then you'll hike. You'll you'll hike each day, but you're not wanting to go above a certain uh, distance each day and certain altitude. So some days you'll you'll hike very little altitude change, uh, but you're mainly trying to acclimate to the to the area. And then some days you'll hike up a mountain that's near you, so that you go up well above 10,000 feet. But then you'll hike back down that day and and sleep at the lower altitude, so that you don't get altitude illness. You're kind of getting your body used to that going up and then come down for a little while, and then eventually you go up and you stay up for a few days. So. You ease your way up to the 20,000 mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, how long did it take you to get to that point? How did y'all do it? So we did, well, the nice thing was we worked in villages. And so we had already spent some time at altitude working in some of the villages before we even started really climbing. And so we were working at close, we were working at close to 10,000 feet for a couple days doing medical work in the villages before we did kind of a focused effort to hike in. And so we were able to hike more aggressively. So we gained, we gained altitude every day rather than stopping at altitudes like some teams will do. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay. But, but we were able to keep going, and so we did it in a little bit shorter time. Most teams would take, even just to go to base camp, would take two weeks. And so we, we took a total of seven days to get there and then three days to hike out. So uh-huh. we did we did in ten days instead. We cut off four days because we did work ahead of time. Yeah. So how long does it take to get all the way to the top? Three weeks, four weeks? All the way to the top, a lot of those teams will take at least four weeks because they'll they'll camp at different levels. And and a big part of that is is weather. Mm-hmm. The the average number of good weather days that allow you to actually go to the top because if the weather's bad, it's very high risk. So they're waiting for that sunny day where the weather, the wind and the weather is not bad. There may only be a handful of good days during the 
two-month period. Mm -hmm. And so they'll camp out there hoping that they can make it until the sunny day and then hike to the top. Yeah. So you'll start to pile teams up waiting for that sunny day if you haven't had a sunny day recently. And then at some point, sometimes teams just run out of time and money. No sunny day, they have to hike back down without ever getting it to the top. Man, that would be just gut-wrenching. Especially when you've invested $50,000 yeah, but it's and have to your, hike back down. But it's also your life. Though, that they, but that's the problem is people have a hard time separating $50,000 from life and death. Well, I guess when you get that and, high. It's and like... I, I tell people I'll never be able to throw away $50,000, so I have no desire to go to the top. Because I think unless you can throw away $50,000 and not think twice about it, you start to compromise the safety yeah. based on the fact that I've got $50,000 invested. Right. And that's, that's what a lot of the guides say. They say, you know, frequently the guide will tell the team, we need to turn around, we need to go back. This is, the, the timing's not right, the weather's not right. And, but the team leader will say, I put too much time and money in this to turn around. And that's never the reason to make a decision. Right. Is I put too much time and money. No, if it's, if it's truly not safe, this guy's been doing it for years and he says it's not safe. I put more weight on him than the amount of time and money I put in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we do that in all kinds of situations in our daily oh, life. A hundred percent. extreme. hundred percent. I mean, I did that for the base camp trip. So I actually got cholera from working in one of the villages. Oh, wow. And I lost 20 pounds. Oh, my goodness. I lost 20 pounds three days before I was supposed to hike to base camp. So within three days, I lost 20 pounds from being sick to death. Yeah. I got three IVs in order to keep enough fluids in me um, throughout those three days. And, uh, and so the, the, the day we were supposed to leave was the first day I ate solid food. And I only ate one meal that day. Wow. And divine intervention, the weather was bad. We were not allowed to fly to the starting point. And so the next day was the first day I actually felt good enough to eat three meals. And so the next day when we were able to fly out, I had three good meals and felt better than I had in a long time. <laughs> yeah, like the, the nutrition is extremely so important if we, too. So if, right? if we had gone on time, I would have struggled. You major. probably would have turned around. Or I would have, yeah, around. I might would have reached the point where I would have had to turn around. And but so, even then, you were weighing the options. But, you know, I mean, but, you know, down 20 pounds, have not eaten a solid meal. Everyone else with me was like, you're not really going to go, are you? And I was like, I've been training and planning for this, you know? I didn't even invest $50,000, and I was saying, I put too much time and money in this. I'm not turning around. Yeah, well, I mean, people will not stay at home when they're sick just to go to work and make money. Exactly. You know, $100 so, that day. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, we do, we make these kind of decisions all the time. Just exactly. So, so it, was the, it was the same exact thing. I was, you know, thankfully it wasn't life and death. I wasn't going to the top of Everest, although it still could have been, could have been, could have been disastrous. I mean, I'm still going to 20,000 feet and going to yeah. remote locations and could have made some very bad things that could have hurt me. Right, right, um, yeah. So, 
I can I, I can see how people do that, and there'll never be a point. <laughs> right. There'll never be a point where I would say I'll throw away fifty thousand dollars. So it's it's just not smart or safe, and I don't desire to pay fifty thousand dollars just to go to the top of that particular mountain. It's mm-hmm. to me, it's not worth that money. Yeah, there's a lot more things I could do with fifty thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, that wouldn't even get me out of debt, but it'd be a nice chunk out of my debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so that's something that you do, I mean, as far as these mission trips, you're doing at least one a year right yes. now, maybe a little different, but um, eventually you'll get back to doing that, I'm sure, yes. traveling, and yeah. whether it be Nepal or Honduras, I mean, that's a big part of your life. You're also, um, you know, you got your family with your two kids. Yeah, my, and my side activities now are are. are or kids activities yeah and so so what are your kids doing so these days well we've been doing a lot of home sports through the quarantine and so uh, a lot of basketball a lot of uh, my daughter's really gotten into tennis and so hmm. thankfully the tennis courts have been open so we've been yeah. able to really enjoy that and, and go out and unfortunately she's getting to the point where she can beat me so it's it's not becoming as fun anymore for me. <laughs> I can't rub it in every time that I beat her yet again. So. Yeah. yeah. But it's fun. It's fun watching your kids grow and develop and get better. So that's your activities is doing whatever your kids activities So whatever are. my kids do is what I do. And yeah. so with my son, we did a lot of basketball and a lot of fishing through the quarantine. Yeah. So. And so what's the, the fall looking like with them going back to school? So with the fall, their school is plans to be in school, and so my my job as home PE teacher will be taken from me as yeah. they go back to school and get an actual PE teacher. <laughs> you have to find something else to keep now, you busy. I know. Now I'm gonna have to have to find my own sport now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I do like to stay active, and so a lot of the stuff I do is, if I don't sign up for something, then I'm not motivated to work out myself, and so mm-hmm. I find signing up for a, a race or a a triathlon or a 5k or something uh, one of the adventure races or something it motivates me to work out because I know I'm going to be held accountable mm-hmm. and so it's that accountability that keeps yeah. me going I think that helps a lot of people like having a goal to work for it's hard just to I mean exercise in general and is something you're forcing yourself to do so when you have something that you can compete yes. for it makes it a lot more fun Yes, I, I, I struggled greatly during the quarantine to maintain activity other than playing with my kids because yeah, not working out next to anybody just at some point it's like, well, nobody will notice. I'll just skip a workout. Yeah, exactly. I keep doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <coughs> last, last two questions. Number one, if there's any kind of, is there any kind of sport or hobby that you haven't tried that you would like to try give a try or have you thought about anything you just haven't been able to do or want to be able to try and do oh man I don't I don't know about haven't tried or won't I mean kind of the next thing on my radar is I've done a marathon and I've done triathlons but I've never done a half Ironman so Uh the half Ironman is on my is on my radar if if my body cooperates yeah you can do it if I can do it you can do it <laughs> right <laughs> I got mine under just my belt gotta last, find, just last gotta year. find the time <laughs> which time. which if things get shut down again I'll have plenty of time and no excuse yeah you can always find the time that's not a problem yeah <laughs> no matter how that's, busy that's probably the next thing on my radar cool half Ironman then a full Ironman then a full Ironman well I'm planning to do a full next year so you are better, you really let's do it together alright I might as well just skip the just half skip and go it. the full 
Do the full. You can't <coughs> say you're a half Iron Man. You got to do a full to say you're an Iron Man. That's it. That's true. <laughs> There's no half Iron Man tattoo. Nope. That would be not that looked just, at well. Yeah, like who does that? <laughs> so, um, where can people find you? Like, I mean, if they need to come see you or get into contact you with you, what's the best way? So, my, my clinical practice is at Central Texas Sports Medicine, and so for patients or in, for evals and stuff, would go through there. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll put that in the show notes for sure so that people know and where to find they, you if they if, get hurt. If they want to get plugged in on the on the mission work, um, Grace Bible Church usually take we take a group that, that I help coordinate to Honduras every year. And we do medical, dental, a vet team, and a children's ministry team. So there's something for everyone. It's, it's kind of nice because the family can go. And that's one thing that I like about that trip is that <coughs> we've been able to take our kids and put them to work on different teams. So... Awesome. Well, Dr. Gill, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was fun. Appreciate the opportunity. For more information about College Station Physical Therapy and Performance, please visit our website at collegestationpt.com or check us out on Facebook at College Station Physical Therapy and Performance or on Instagram at College Station PT. That's it for today. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody, to The Active Texan.